But if you turn to Revelation chapter 20, that's where we're going to be this morning, Revelation 20. And um, we've been in a series the last number of weeks uh, called All Things New, because when you read the, the book of Revelation, it's like a story that is moving and progressing to where uh, God is in the process of making all things new, that in the future He will, not maybe, He not might, He will make all things new. And that's what we've been looking at as we've been looking at the last few chapters of Revelation. 19.20 is where we're at right now. And as I was preparing for today, I was reminded of the last word that has gotten in in whatever situation. How many of you here that are married, you love to have the last word? Don't raise your hands. Oh, you can, a couple people. You're, right, you're in an argument, you just want to have the last word. Like, so in the argument, they say something, oh, I'm just going to say something, I, and it just keeps going because you've got to have the last word. There's something about the last word when you think about it. I mean, in many different scenarios, um, if you're in, um, in the court or in the court of law, there's something decisive about that final word. The, the trial takes place and defense, it, it, they pitch their side of things, and there, there's a prosecution that lays out their side of things and all this different stuff, but the last word is given to the judge or the jury, and that is final. That's it. It doesn't matter what you think, right? Say you're, you're hunting for a job, and you've put in your resume. You've worked really hard at it. You did the interview, and you killed it. And all of your references gave you a great word, and you're like, man, I'm going to get this job. And then you get the news. You didn't get the job because the employer actually has, no matter what you think or how well you did, the employer has the final word, the last word, right? I mean, um, we love sports, right, in our country. And man, you're, you're playing your rival, and you're talking smack, and like you think your team's going to win, and you've given your opinion, and the odds have been cast for your team if they're going to win or they're not. You watched on TV, and analysis are given as to whether what team's going to win, and it doesn't matter. Any of that, none of that matters. What matters is the final score, is the final word. It doesn't matter what anyone said before that. That's the final word. And when we look at the text today, this is what I want you to see. And all of that we see in Revelation in our text today is that God gets the final word when it comes to sin and evil. And that's the hope we look for, is that God is the final word. Satan doesn't have the final word. Nothing in this world has the final word. God himself gets the final word. And in the process, right? Um, Jesus is in the process, as I said, of renewing all things. But in the process, in order to renew all things, he has to rid the world of what's ruining it. What's ruining it? Sin and evil and brokenness. And so, man, the forces of evil, of tragedy after tragedy. I mean, you, I talk about this all the time, man. Just keep watching the news and be depressed. Tragedy after tragedy that comes about because of sin and brokenness that you see every single day. Well, the hope that I have is not that the next candidate's going to do it better or this is going to happen in the world. The hope that I have is one day God's going to make all things new. That's the joy and the hope. And that God gets the final word on all of the evil and the brokenness that we see in the world. And so as you look through Scripture, Jesus has been decisively overthrowing every enemy that he has. We didn't look at it and from chapter 17 all the way through half chapter of 19 and 20. He's, he's overthrowing all of his enemies. I and mean, we didn't look at it, but he, he described the destruction of Babylon, which is all the 
the, the cities are really the, the evil forces that come against him, like a millstone was thrown into the bottom of the sea. We started in chapter 19 as the beast and the false prophet are captured and thrown into uh, the lake of fire. And even this week, as we go forward, we're looking at today as Jesus has the final judgment on the powers of darkness and even Satan. Babylon's fallen, the beast is captured, the false prophet is silenced, and now he's going to have the last word on the forces of evil, ultimately Satan, sin, and death. So as we look at it, John describes how he's going to do these things and how it's going to happen in his vision. And I want to look at it with you starting in verse 7. And the first thing, there's a number of things that are defeated, and the first of all of them is Satan. Satan is defeated. You sleep well at night knowing that. Revelation chapter 20, verse 7. It says, then, excuse me, and when the thousand years are ended. So remember last week we talked about the millennial kingdom of God, these thousand years. So after that's over, thousand years is ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the, final, at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog. We'll come back to that. To gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. So there's a lot of them. And they matched up over, they marched, excuse me, up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they were being, and they will be, excuse me, tormented day and night forever and Ever. And so when you look at this, it's, it's, it's showing us the decisive win of God that Satan will be dece- defeated. In re- previously in Revelation chapter 20, if you were around, you can go back and read it if you weren't. <coughs> Excuse me. John noted how God will bound Satan for 1,000 years, restricting him from deceiving the nations. We talked about that. Depending on what your view of Revelation is, it doesn't matter, but he's bound for those 1,000 years. And then now we're reading he'll be released after the 1,000 years. And and man, if there's ever been someone who spent time in jail or prison, the hope would be is that, man, as they're there, they're learning from their actions, say, man, I want to I leave here newly with a new sense of hope and freedom and changing of my life. But man, there's, there's not that at all when it comes to Satan. He leaves. It says immediately after he's loosed, he's released, and immediately he sets off to deceive the nations and turn them against the God. And, and it's just a, a picture, and it really speaks to the hardness of the heart of Satan. It's terribly hard towards God. From the very beginning, he has nothing in him that wants to do anything than to rob, steal, kill, and destroy. He's released, and he goes back to his same ways. And it says that he heads to the four corners of the earth to deceive the nations and gather them against God in battle. And it seems as though that Satan is really good at recruiting. Really good at recruiting. I mean, I'll tell you, it's no different. It seems as though he's always been good at recruiting. From Genesis, when he deceived Adam and Eve, to the, to the end, he'll still be good at recruiting. Right now, he's still good at recruiting all kinds of different people and deceiving all kinds of people. People in this room, he's deceiving. He deceives me from time to time. Satan seems he's very good at what he does in recruiting. And man, often, we, we've talked about this a number of times, we think Satan as like this, this red guy that has horns with a pitchfork. 
Man, Satan's not coming at you as the red guy with the pitchfork. No, Satan is deceiving the nations in a lot of different ways, right? We talked a little bit about this last week. He's deceiving the world to think that something else is better than God. He's deceiving the world that the love of this world is what's satisfied. He's deceiving common Christians to apathy, man. He doesn't care if you worship him. He just cares that you're not fully worshiping God. And he distracts us with the broken cisterns of this world that we hew out to satisfy our soul, but they're only broken cisterns. And he, he, he distracts us with, with finding our identity and random stuff that will never fully satisfy or speak to our soul. And over and over and over again, through all of history, Satan is deceiving. And he's still doing it today. And it sounds as though he will be doing it until the end. And he's recruited, it says, so many people from so many nations, they are as if he sees the sand of the seashore. I mean, that's a lot. A lot of them. And he calls them, he refers to them as Gog and Magog. And you might recognize if you studied the Bible uh, for a while that, that, that this is reference. This is what two names of the enemies of God in the Old Testament, specifically in Ezekiel 38 and 39. And so Mag and Gog, or Gog and Magog seem to be a representation of the collective enemies of God that Satan has gathered to come against God himself. And it says they're on a broad plain, and most believe that that's probably speaking of the amount of people, like the sand of the sea. They need a broad plain as they come against God in battle, as they're coming up over the hill to, to encamp or surround the enemy, or excuse me, surround the camp of God and the beloved city and the people of God. And man, it seems as though, I don't know about you, but if you just stopped right at um, verse 9 in the middle there, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. Man, you just stop right there, and it seems like, man, they're in a world of trouble. I don't know about you, but if there's an army that is as many as the sand of the sea, and, and they're, they're, they're just covering the land, and they've now surrounded you, you're like, man, you stop right there. You're like, man, this doesn't look very good for the people of God. And I feel as though, honestly, many times we read the Bible that way, or we just think that way. Man, if we just look at the world today and we just don't continue on with, with what God is going to ultimately do, that's why I think it's great to study the end because it should impact now. Man, it's easy to look at what God's doing around the world. Someone like Ramesh come and be like, man, we're making a dent in what God's doing in, in Nepal and in India, but man, there's, there's thousands of more girls under the clutches of darkness. And you look at the, 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 just the, the seems the world's burning to the ground around us. And you look around, and you're like, man, if you don't keep reading, you could be like, man, it seems as though our camp is surrounded and Satan is winning. And I don't know if there's any hope, but one of my favorite phrases, my favorite words in the Bible is, but God. Man, it might seem like all is lost, but God is in control. It might like seem like, man, God's not doing, but God has a plan in all of it. But, I love it. And that word, the second verse, I have verse nine, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. I love that. There's no indication that the people of God did any fighting, like I said before. The complete sovereign will of God, one-sided act of God, the armies of Satan are consumed in a moment. And just after that, God is like, enough is enough. 
The power of Satan at this moment is going to end, and in a moment, he delivers the final word, and he casts Satan into the lake of fire with the beast and the false prophet. It's the end of Satan. Now, he's not mentioned. This is the last time Satan's mentioned in Scripture, in Revelation itself. Revelation chapter 20, verse 9 is the last time he's mentioned in the Bible. Why? Because Satan is defeated. This is the hope that we have. Man, this is the encouragement I want to give to somebody today that needs to hear it. Man, Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12, the Apostle Paul rightly declares, he says, we as followers of Jesus do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against authorities and against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And I just want to tell you today, and all that we're wrestling with, you're not wrestling against the person that doesn't believe politically like you do. You're you're not wrestling against um, some person. You're wrestling against the powers of darkness that have deceived the person that you think you're going against. Right? You think about it. I, I, I said this in the first service. I was moved when I was in Nepal with Ramesh and his team because they're not just praying for young girls to be rescued out of trafficking so that they can lead them to Jesus and they can lead them to, to restoration. They're actually also praying for the traffickers because they're people made in the image and likeness of God and they've been so deceived into doing heinous things and evil things, but they themselves have been fully deceived as well. Because we're not wrestling wrestling against flesh and blood. We're wrestling against the prince of the power of the air who is roaring like like a lion, seeing who he can devour, and he's doing it to all of us. Amen. What I want to encourage you with, as I'm sure there's a lot of people in this room, maybe you've been a believer for a long time. Man, I'm sure there's someone in this room that You've been a believer for 30 years and you're still wrestling with that stupid sin that you cannot overcome. That there's people in this room that are just, man, they've been standing firm in the Lord for years, trying their best to walk in the Spirit with the Lord, taking up the sword of the Spirit, resisting the schemes of the devil, but it seems as though I take many times more steps backward than I'm taking forward in my following of Jesus. I just want to encourage you today. There's coming a day where you will no longer struggle and wrestle with the powers of Satan and evil. There's coming a day where God will make all things right. The good news of the gospel is we win and he loses. Every spiritual attack you experience, every time you experience spiritual warfare, every time you feel pinned down in this world, and I just want to give you hope, you can overcome because Jesus already has overcome and there's coming a day where you will fully realize that overcoming when Satan is cast into the lake of fire. Because man, the encouragement is set here like, like, man, how many of you watch college football? Yes, I know a lot more of you. You didn't raise your hands. It's fine. Um, and we probably have a number of Michigan State fans and Michigan fans here, right? Not to divide the church, but yes, they're here. And we even probably have some, some backsliders, I would say maybe even non-believers as o, uh, uh, Ohio State fans. <laughs> right? We're having a time of prayer and worship in the prayer room afterwards for you can receive Christ. It's great. Um, Right, but on any given Saturday 
In the fall, we're, we're like looking to see if it, Michigan's your team or Michigan State's your team or whatever. You're watching like, man, if you can't watch the game yourself, you're like, did they win? Did they win? And you're finally like, yes, okay, Michigan won. What's your second look? Did Ohio State lose? <laughs> because it's not good enough just to have Michigan win. Ohio State has to lose because that's double glory, right? That's why we've beaten them the last couple of years. It's been amazing and really good. Sorry, Josh. <laughs> but right, it, it, there's something sweet about not just winning, but your enemy losing. And that's why it's here, is to give us hope. It's, it's not just that we win and we get to be with God for all of time. Our enemy will no longer be loose, deceiving anyone else, giving anyone else a hard time, taking anyone else's life. He loses. And that's the hope I have. That's the hope we have. That's the thing that should spur us on to follow Jesus, right? Well, it's not only that, that Satan is defeated, sin is actually judged. Look with me in, in verse 13. It says, uh, sorry, verse 11. Then I saw the great white throne and who, him who was seated on it. And from his presence, earth and the sky fled away. That's a scary thing. And there was no place found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. Then another book was opened. So there's, there's a couple different sets of books, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in it. And they were judged, each of them, according to what they had done. Now we're going to skip over verse 14 because we'll come back to it. Verse 15. And in, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. We may not... Like that, but that's there, right? So sin is actually judged here in this passage. So after John sees Satan thrown into the lake of fire, he now sees a great white throne, and there's a person sitting in the throne, which he doesn't name, but we know that that's God generally and specifically Jesus. And the greatness of the throne is, is, is signified by this divine power. And the whiteness of the throne is absolute purity. And the, the throne itself shows ultimate power and authority given to the one sitting on it, seated on it, and the majesty and the glory of this throne is so terrifying. That's why it bothers me, I'll just be honest with you, when I see people wearing a t-shirt that says, Jesus is my homeboy. I'm, I'm, I'm just saying, there's nobody here with that sentiment. It says that the sky and the earth are so terrified, they flee from God's presence, and there is nowhere to be found to flee the gaze and the presence of God. It says there, man, no one can escape it. And John says he sees standing before every person ever. No one escapes it. Every person in every place, all the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And I love that because it levels the playing field. Every person, people of great wealth and people of small wealth, people of great fame and no fame, people of great intelligence and no intelligence, regardless of their differences in life, they are all alike, all together, standing before the throne of God. No one gets to escape it. The people are give way there to standing before the throne of God, Right? And again John's, again, John's point here is this, is that no matter your societal status, no matter the realm of death, no matter anything, no one is exempt 
from standing before the judgment of God. Now, this is an awe-inspiring vision. I mean, I don't know the greatest number of people you've ever seen with your eyes. What's the biggest crowd you've ever seen? Think about that. I mean, I know Ford Field holds like 65,000. There may be some Swifties in this room that were down there. The last couple of days, like every kid on my daughter's soccer team was going to Taylor Swift, and I think they maybe fit probably, I think I heard somewhere around 75,000 with the floor and all that kind of stuff there in the rooms. A lot of people, right? I think the most people I've ever seen with my eyes is maybe at, uh, at Michigan Stadium, hundred some thousand, right around there. It's a lot of people. You look at it and you're like, man, everyone from the state is in here, but we know that's not the case because Michigan State is still, those people aren't there. But you think, like, man, there's a lot of people, right? And that, that doesn't even hold a candle to this. All people from all time standing before the Lord. Just think about that. Enormous. Enormous crowd there before the Lord, before the throne, and they're all there for the same reason. They're there for judgment. And it says the dead were judged according to what they had done. It's pretty unbelievable. So the scene changes from a battlefield to now a courtroom in this setting. And here it says that, man, God has defeated the cosmic forces of evil, and now he's going to accomplish individual accountability. And I can't say that loud enough. Individual accountability. Here, standing before the Lord. And there's a couple of books described, right? He says the books were opened, and then there's another book. So the book open contains the actions of individuals by which they will be judged. So every individual, there's books open, and everything you've ever done, every thought you've ever thought, every good thing you've ever done or bad thing you've ever done is there in the books. And it says they will be judged, right? And then there's a second book. It says the book of life. It's mentioned six times throughout the book of Revelation, and it says, those whose names are written in the book of life will not be cast in the lake of fire, and God's judgment will not be put upon them in this moment, right? So it begs the question of who, whose names are written in the book of life? You've probably heard before, but those of you who haven't, later in Revelation, chapter 21 and verse 27, it gives us a clue. The book of life is not just called the book of life, it's called the Lamb's book of life, right? And the lamb, of course, is Jesus, the lamb who was slayed and placed on the cross for us as the atonement for us, as the substitutionary atonement, taking our place on the cross, right? So now what that means is all the people you hear today, all the past people, all the future people in life who place their faith and trust in Christ, the lamb of God on the cross for us that died on our behalf, in that moment, Jesus took all of our judgment. So one day we stand before the Lord, we will not get the judgment of God because it's already been placed on Jesus in our place and we've been covered by the blood of Jesus. And our name will be written in the Lamb's book of life because Jesus already suffered the judgment of God on the cross when God turned his back on Jesus and the relationship was severed for the first time in all of history. So, when you get into the end of this, think about it. There's only two ways your sins can be judged. And it's a very serious thing to think about. Your sins can be judged before the great white throne judgment, or they can be judged at the great, ju the great white throne judgment. Right? And for all of us in this room who have placed our faith and trust in Jesus, 
There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're here today and you haven't placed your faith in Jesus alone, no religiosity, no giving money so God will be made happy, if, uh, God will make, I'll make God happy, but just fully, I bring nothing to the table, God. You did it all on the cross, and I place all of my faith and trust and hope in what you did on the cross, and I trust that that's good enough, and somehow it accounts for me, and now in that moment, I'm rescued and redeemed, and now I follow Jesus in obedience and doing these things, not to make him love me because he loved me, I do it, right? And in all of that, man, that's something we need to think about. Has our sin been paid for, or will one day we be judged because of what we have done. The beauty of the gospel is that Jesus already paid the price on our behalf. He's already paid the penalty. So now if we trust in him, the Lamb of God, we're covered, right? And that doesn't, I mean, you might be sitting here and you're like, that's awesome. I've been, I've been a Christian for like 30 years. It's really great or whatever. Maybe you've been a Christian for six months. Man, I just want to compel us. That doesn't, that shouldn't compel us to sit on our hands in a chair on Sunday mornings and live however we want. Like, man, I'm just waiting for that glorious day when all the world stands before God and I'm, I'm good because I've been covered by the Lamb. I'm just telling you, that's not what it should do. It should compel us to worship and mission. And worship is not singing here on Sunday mornings. It's part of it. Worship is following Jesus day to day in our lives and the places we do life and doing right with what God's given us by way of generosity and following the commands of God in Scripture and, and, and leading people to Jesus and sharing the gospel and serving the least of these and all that God has called us to do. Man, it should compel us to worship and mission, making disciples and seeing more people come into the kingdom of God so that when they stand before the, one, the Lord one day, they're covered. They're not sitting or standing in their judgment before God. Man, this should compel us, push us forward. Satan loses. Sin loses. It's judged. And then just in a couple of moments, verse 14, death is actually destroyed, and this is good news for us. Then it says in verse 14, death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. Death and Hades are mentioned in a pair of, uh, four different times in Revelation. I can't get into each one of them. But now here in verse 14, he's saying not only are the dead judged, but death and Hades itself are judged and destroyed. I mean, that's, that's fantastic. As a pastor, I, I get the joy, it's hard, but the joy of doing many funerals. I don't know if you've ever, I've had four family members die in the last six months. I don't, I don't know if you've sat at a funeral and ever thought and had the feeling, men, this is not the way it's supposed to be. This is not, this is not like, this is not a blessing from God. No, this is the exact opposite. This is, this is hard. This is, this is the enemy of God. This is the opposite of what is good, right? In Revelation 20, 14, we see here that God does not surrender to the enemy. God does not make peace with the enemy of death. God does not come to terms with the enemy of death. No, God destroys the enemy of death. And I don't know about you, that's, that's amazing news. 
the death and Hades are plunged into the lake of fire forever. And, and, and man, one of the most beautiful and, and good verses in all of Scripture, all of Revelation for sure, in Revelation 21 and verse 4, we'll get there eventually. John says, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes of his people, and death shall be no more. Man, there'll be no more death because death is eternally submerged in the blazing waters of the lake of fire. Man, that's, that's amazing good news. There's a, there's a family that we, we prayed over for healing before the service. One day there'll, there'll be no cancer that people have to wrestle with. You will no longer sit at a funeral and be like, man, this is not the way it intended to be. There'll be no more hurt girls in, in brothels in India being used as a piece of trash because God will make all things new. Man, that's amazing news. Death will be no more. Sin will be no more. It'll be defeated. Satan will be eternally thrown into the lake of fire because God's authoritative word is his final word against the forces of darkness in our, in our world. And man, I, I just know God wants to encourage you here today to know that not only do we win, but the enemy loses. And in this place, we should receive hope and encouragement knowing that Satan will be defeated, sin will face justice, and death will be destroyed forever. This is, this is what we long for. This is our hope and in the meantime, my prayer is that it will compel us, compel us to mission and worship and further following Jesus with all that we have. Because, man, God is so good, so good. He's the hope that I long for more than anything else. There's nothing in this world. Satan loses, death is defeated, and sin is judged in the name of Jesus. Amen? Let's, let's pray together. God, thank you for today and for the beauty of revelation as oftentimes we use it as a secret decoder ring to try and figure out what's happening in the world around us. And really, God, you wrote it by the Apostle John that we might be encouraged, the people of his time and today, that we might know and experience your goodness and your plan and the hope that we have in you. And so, God, my hope is today that people in this place would be the first service and now would be encouraged that Satan will be defeated. It's already done. We just haven't fully experienced it yet. So, God, if there's people in this room that are walking weary of the besetting sin that overcomes them often and they wrestle against every single day. Help them to take courage knowing as they wrestle today and every day, one day they will no longer wrestle because it will be done. And if there's people in this place, I know there are, that are wrestling with the sorrow of a lost loved one in the last while or however many years ago, know that one day that will be no more. 
we will experience true victory and life because the cross of Jesus Christ has the final word and it will be spoken one day. And so God, take, maybe take hope in that today. May we be spurred on to love and good works and mission in this place to move out as the kingdom of God. Be with everyone in this place and encourage us to walk faithfully with you. It's in Jesus' powerful name we pray.